0: It's December 31st, 1992. I'm in Times Square, writing a story for my college newspaper about the dropping of the ball and the New York City craziness come New Year's Eve. There are people everywhere. It smells like beer and body odor. I take a break to relieve myself and depart the frigid night to enter the bathroom of some random bar. I mosey up to the urinal, unzip my pants, start to pee. Then, plop, my reporter's notepad falls into a puddle of piss. I look at it, the pagers are soaking in yellow. I look at it again, yellow, more yellow. I do what I'm trained to do. I pick up the P-log pad, flop it a few times into the air and continue with my assignment. Happy New Year. My name is Jeff Perlman. That was 27 years ago. I'd make the same decision today. I'm the New York Times best-selling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features David Clymer, my former Tennessean colleague and one of the best newspaper columnists to walk the planet. We talk calling on Pat Summit to step away, sitting near the bomb during the 1996 Olympic Games, and assessing life with pancreatic cancer. This is episode number 135. Let's sling some Yang. All right, David, when I was at the Tennessee Inn, I think it was 24, there were two main sports columnists or, or two sort to me larger than life figures. And it was you and Larry Woody. I don't know if this makes sense or if you had people you felt this way about, even though on the outside, you seem like this cocky kid and blah, blah, blah. Like you look at these people and you see them as almost larger than life. And you're intimidated because you're young and dumb and they seem wise and you know seasoned and i would actually say that is how i felt about you when i was at the tennessee and i'm this little piece of crap and here's this guy who's sort of distinguished and established and knows what he's doing and is confident and probably sees right through me i still have those feelings in a weird way does that make sense or does that sound really dumb
1: makes no sense to me at all and how long have you been doing the podcast jeff Uh, about two and a half years so a guy's got to be diagnosed with cancer to get on your podcast. That's a, so it really means a lot to you.
0: That's good to hear. That is correct. It actually takes a cancer diagnosis or at least a heart attack to get on here. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> what you're saying, I, I first off, I appreciate it because yeah, you were a cocky kid, but you were awfully talented. And I think that's what shone through early on. And, and people like me, I, I never considered myself overly talented. I thought I worked hard at it um, and took a lot of pride in what I did and how I did it and the way I treated, tried to treat people as I as I was doing it. Looking back, and Lord knows I, I got a, look, a lot of looking back to do at age 66, the idea that maybe somewhere along the line you influence people who just I think you and I went to lunch one time, probably toward the end of your stay in Tennessee and sports and uh, talked about some things, but it's not like you and I gathered at the coffee pot three or four times a day and talked serious journalism or anything like that. I think we just kind of, I read your stuff, you read mine. We'd have little conversations, joke a bit and and leave it at that, but it's nice to know that as you're doing all that uh, what became could at times be very tedious work and then other times awfully fun work that maybe somebody over there is noticing who doesn't you, know, you like the people that write your paycheck to really notice but maybe some of the younger ones uh, see something along the way and kind of kind of gravitate toward a couple of things you do and then figure out ways to Reinvent that, and so it suits themselves. But it's very, very kind of you to say, and I appreciate that.
0: You can't bury the lead here. So you, um, <laughs> you're going through, a, you're going through a, a battle with pancreatic cancer. Do you find yourself at all ever asking yourself whether this whole journalism thing was worth it? You spent starting in 1974, I think, your first byline in the Tennesseean. Um, you left Sounds in 2015. Right. As you sit here and you think about it all, was it worth it?
1: Yeah, you know, there there are times that you wonder, well, what, what have I gotten into? I, as far as a career path goes, I think I wrote one time, and if you're born with a sports writing gene, I got it. Because, you know, I, I played sports as a kid, wasn't very good, but loved it. But I, I watched really good players, and I watched really good people, and I tried to pay attention to – uh what went into that beyond just natural ability and i'm talking about not only athletes but the coaches and support people and all that what what made them different and and how they impacted i had a profound interest in sports i found i could write a bit you know the hours could be rotten uh, travel could be as much fun as it was on some trips nothing against southeast eastern conference members schools but you wake up in a couple of those towns and for a basketball game in the middle of November. And it's like, what in the world am I doing? So looking back over the whole life, I'd change a lot of things. I'd change the way I approach some stories. I'd change the way I wrote some stories. I'd, I'd change, frankly, the way I treated some people. But changing career path? Absolutely not. It, it was a good life and I think very rewarding and You know, I'm sure you do the same thing today. When you, when you speak to young people, everything's so different now and I can't really relate. But if the question comes up, well, should I really do this? My answer is if you're asking yourself, should you really do it? No. But if you really believe in what you're doing and you really believe you can make a difference, hell yeah, jump into that. It's, uh, the business has changed, but the, the
0: rewards are still there to be had. I want to throw a big fat question at you, and I'm not even sure how to phrase it, but you were born uh, 1953. Very good. 1957, the Supreme court desegregated schools in Tennessee. And yes, uh, I wrote a biography Mm -hmm. of Walter Payton and Walter Payton was at the forefront of desegregation in in Mississippi. You were a white kid, a white Mm -hmm. sports writer covering Tennessee state, a historically black college covering their football team, early in your career and i sort of wonder what that marriage was like like did you had you spent your life around african-american was it a matter of the team accepting and embracing you as a beat writer was it smooth was it clunky uh clunky is a good word let's
1: let's go back a little the supreme court may have made its ruling in 57 but uh let's just say the memo didn't get all the way around the state very quickly I was in the third grade, I believe, at McLean School in Lebanon, Tennessee, before the first black student, African American student entered that school. Now, it could be right. Could have been second grade, could have been fourth, but I'm pretty sure it was third. So a uh, guy's named John Hall. I remember him. I actually went to school through high school with John, but that, In those days, and I hate to be the old guy talking about those days, but they are true, that Lebanon, like many small towns, and even big town, Nashville, had a white part of town and a black part of town, and the twain did meet. Now, that was a beautiful thing, especially about sports. That's where you had crossover because if you're sweating your butt off and you're playing pickup basketball in the middle of the summer, or what, you ain't paying attention to who's what color. It's just, okay, who's on my team and how come that guy keeps kicking my butt? So that's what, that's where you got away from it, but segregation was very real. I remember, gosh, I'm, I'm sure I'm in school, grammar school, at least if not even toward junior high, white only water fountains, black only water fountains. Uh, movie theater, the balcony was for, for African-Americans. Everything downstairs was for for white folks. So all that is part of what I grew up with. Um, and some people to this day, and some of them are still friends of mine, it's hard to believe, but they wish it were still that way around here. So it, the the whole Tennessee State experience, Jeff, to me, the best thing that could ever have happened to me to get me deep into the job at the Tennessee and was getting the Tennessee state beat best thing that ever happened. Now from the racial point of view, very difficult opening few months on the beat. I'd, I'd walk into the beat at the start of football season in 1977. I still, I don't really want that job. I'll be honest. I I was spoiled where I'd been. Uh I probably had enough Pearlman in me to think I'm better than this. You know, none of my friends read about Tennessee State. My my parents won't read about it. Their their friends won't read about it, even with my byline on it. So I quickly got over that. But what happened? You there's a phase in period there because. I think race relations go both ways. There was a distrust of me by many people on the Tennessee state campus, because here is this white kid out of the university of Tennessee. Know it all. Again, I did have a little Perlman in me. Um, and you know, what the heck, what does, what the heck does he know about black college football? And they were exactly right. What the heck did I know? Because I had no clue. bless his heart, the late John Merritt a uh, legendary coach should be even more legendary to this day, one of the winningest coaches of all time. Finally, one day after putting up with me as he said for a month we we've, we've gone through four football games. he doesn't like what I'm writing. I don't like a hundred thousand things about what I'm doing because of the job and the Difficulty traveling and trying to work around all the, the roadblocks that, that were put in your way. Merritt pulled me over after practice one night, and, and Big John smoked a cigar. And out there on the edge of that practice field on the TSU campus, he just kind of pulled me over and said, uh, Dave, they tell me I've uh, that you're mine and I've got to deal with you. So let's just see if we can make this work. And from that day forward, he opened up to me. I opened up to him. Uh, we became so close that when my wife-to-be, Rebecca, first came to Nashville, I took her to a TSU practice to meet John Merrick. For For a young journalist, having to find your own way, having to keep your own stats, having to set up your own... Interviews, arrange your own photographs, all that stuff.
0: It was invaluable. It's the best thing that could ever happen. I covered high school wrestling at the Tennessean, and it was a it was a year right. where all I wanted to do was get off of high school wrestling, and I actually ended up missing covering <laughs> high school wrestling. I really loved covering high school wrestling. I wonder if there was a yep. part of you when you got moved to the biggest beat at the time, the UT, if there were if there were parts of covering Tennessee State that maybe you didn't realize you'd miss that you actually missed.
1: Absolutely, because the people were so good, and it's just, it's in a word different. And people that turn on their high-definition TVs and watch 10 games on a Saturday uh, morning to, to after midnight that don't see that kind of football, the pageantry of it, uh the bands, all that stuff, you, you miss out on some of it, and I, to this day, I encourage people. You know, there's a there's a school around the corner. Whether you're in South Carolina, like we are full time now, or in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a school that's playing a really good game today. If you can carve out three and a half four hours, just go by, enjoy what goes on before the game, during the game. The best way to get a count for how many people are at a historically black university football game is to go in the stadium at halftime because everybody comes to watch the bands. I love covering UT, a lot of great memories there, but uh, you know,
0: Tennessee State forever will have a place in my heart. Before we continue with Two writers Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor, Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my friend Mikey, who's four and a half and super into the gear at 503 Sports. So Mikey, what's your favorite throwback jersey from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: So Mikey, do you like my Denver Gold t-shirt? Monster Trucks. How about my Mike Rozier Maulers jersey? Mm, no, I want a grown-up jersey. Oh, would you like a 503 Sports jersey? How about this Ken Griffey Jr. minor league jersey? He's a baby. Mikey, how often do you go to 503-sports.com to order stuff? Poop. Oh, what kind of poop? Angel, Angel poop. I don't know, man. I feel like there's Angel some hostility poop. here. Blah, 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 blah. I was just thinking of something that um, happened to me when I was at the Tennessee, and I definitely never told you about this, but I um, I was still a features writer, and there was a guy named Gene Wyatt, I'm sure you remember. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And one day... Um, and Gene Wire at that point was just the film reviewer for the Tennessean, but he was kind of this large <laughs> yeah. figure in the offices. One day I told him that I'd just seen the Spike Lee movie, do the right thing. He said to me, just another blank director with an attitude. Uh-huh. And the word he used was, it was the N word. I was 23 years old. And all I heard was that Gene Wyer was this legend. Right. And uh, I ended up sending him an inner office email saying, I just wanted to know, I was really, I, I just I was really bothered by that and blah blah blah. And yep. one of the large, one of the higher ups at the newspaper actually called me into his office and chewed me out and said that I was lying. Really? And I was not lying. Yeah, correct. And um Wow. I wonder you're an enlightened guy and you've seen a lot in your career. How throughout your life do you handled those situations? You're covering Tennessee State and maybe someone's right, oh, they put you on the NB. How how did you go about handling those situations and how are you supposed to?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I handled it well. I never got that kind of pushback in the office and I, I regret hearing that. That's stuff like that just well. Those I always hate the well those were those days and that's just the way people were. Well, people can and should change. Um I, I probably didn't react well at times because one of the things, and I think, I think with your books, Jeff, you do it to, to a grand degree. When I'm covering a beat, that's my beat. That's the most important thing to me, uh, work wise that there is. So to tell me that's unimportant, like high school wrestling, man, they got you covering high school wrestling. Yeah. But look at the stories I have. Look what I can do if I'll put my, you know, get. Put my head down and get to work on it. So I, yeah, you, you hear that and you, you, people would say stuff like, I thought you were going to work for the Tennessean. And I'd go, well, yeah, I am. I've been there a year and a half. Well, do you write or just work in the office? Like just working in the office was some stigma. Um, I said, no, I write, I write pretty much every day. Well, what you're not in sports then, are you? Yeah, I'm in sports. I'm covering Tennessee state and it's like, Oh, well, okay. Yeah, because that person is never going to read a word about that black school on the north end of town. And I don't care about them. They, you know, that they're not in the SEC. They don't count. So yeah, you, you get that kind of pushback. How should you handle it? You probably should confront everyone that raises that issue and just state your point and and argue the point if you need to and try to enlighten the person finally in my old age. And in the, in the era of Trump, I've finally figured out there are just some people you can't enlighten. And maybe you do just walk away from those. But if there's any chance, I think you fight your fight and say, there's a reason I'm covering this and I'm proud of what I'm doing And here. Uh, Try reading this story, I think it's pretty
0: damn good. So that's the way you probably ought to do it. So you became a columnist in ninety-four, and you uh I asked you about the the memorable pieces you wrote, and there are two I want to talk about. One, March twenty eighth, two thousand twelve, it's time for Summit to make hard decision. And oh yeah. You you wrote a column. Pat Summit was the uh, the University of Tennessee women's coach, obviously a legend, and but she was going battling Alzheimer's. And um, I'll just right. read your lead real quick, was you said, right up front, let's be clear on one thing. This is Pat Summit's call. After 38 years, 1,098 victories, and countless lives touched, she has earned that privilege. But it's time. As much as we all admire Summit for her accomplishments, for what she has meant to her university and her sport, and most of all, for her grace in dealing with such a horrible disease, the time has come to step away. One season dealing with the diagnosis of early onset dementia, Alzheimer's type under sets a microscope was courageous. Another season would be tragedy. And you wrote this Mm. very reasoned, but kind of painful to read, take that she needs Mm. to get away from the program and it's time to pass the torch. What goes into writing that? How much do you have self-debate before you put it out there and do it all cringe even before it comes out knowing that you're going to get a ton of shit over this one?
1: Yeah, I, I was worried less about the ton of shit than just, I, how do you explain it? I was worried how Pat might accept it or not accept it. And in those, let, let's give a little background. Pat had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's the summer before she had really struggled down the stretch of the previous year and, uh, Thought it was uh, she had rheumatoid arthritis, thought she was having a reaction to a medication change. And then at some point, doctors were more confused she was to went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and, and got the diagnosis, kept it to herself, as Pal would do, for the better part of a week, I think, and then told her staff Word got out and, and on and on. She decided, the university decided, and and I think it was probably the right thing to do, if not certainly the right thing to do. Holly Warlick was her trusted lieutenant. Holly had been an assistant, had played there, former walk-on who had become an All-American. Holly had worked for her for decades, knew the program inside and out. And Holly took on the responsibility that the head coach normally had. Um, it was clear Pat had lost something, and it was something that wasn't coming back. So thing you you saw, and I didn't cover Lady Vols every game. Don't want to misrepresent that, but I was around him enough to to see some of what was going on. I remember one game in particular, and I think it's probably somewhere in that column or it's in one I wrote, where she stood up at the end of a game. And she didn't sit at the at the head of the bench. She sat kind of in the middle, which was odd. Or even at the the far end. As the season went along, it became clear she was less and less involved. At the end of a game, the Lady Vols won. She stood up, and it was clear she had no idea what to do. Now, for decades. She had walked to the other, the opposing bench, you know, they cross paths, high five, and congratulate each other on good game and all that. But she stood there for what seemed like an eternity with a glazed look on her face. And it was just obvious to me what was going on. Holly Warlick, to her credit, realized it pretty quickly, went down, grabbed Pat by the arm, kind of steered her along, And then she got in her element, went through the motions, did all that. So I I was talking to a really good source over the years who was right in the middle of it. And that person told me, yeah, we talked later and Coach Summit just wasn't really there. And that was an indicator to me of how bad it had gotten and how much worse it would get. So. You knew the time was coming, you saw the pressure it was putting on players, the impact it had on recruiting. Yeah, players still wanted to come and play for Pat Summit, but they really weren't playing for Pat Summit. Uh you in particular saw the impact on Holly Warlick, who couldn't get out from behind this shadow. So it was time, but how do you how do you confront that personally? With some trepidation. You I, I knew in my heart what I was writing was correct. I knew it couldn't and shouldn't go on. But I also wondered if the university, which, frankly, by that time had lost most of its leadership, and I'm not sure it's found since, um, didn't really. They were just trying to. It, it was almost like, let's kind of pretend this isn't happening and maybe it'll go away kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, you're going to get bad, uh, aggressive calls the next day. And I, I was one of those office guys. I couldn't work from home. I had to go to the office. I answered the phone, did all that stuff. So I got all that crap. We got a death threat. They call me in the human resources for that little talking to, and as fate would have it, I was supposed to leave town a day later. And somebody had said, I know where you live, gave me the address. I know when your wife gets home from work and all that stuff. So they did what they had to do. And Rebecca and I talked about it. And she said, I'll go on. I'll be fine. And, and all that. <laughs> but yeah, you you know, it's you know, it's going to be shitty the next day. But I, I think there's a responsibility there. And no one in the media had even whispered about it publicly. Uh, prior to that, the Knoxville media had taken hands off um, good guys covering, uh, but they just hadn't wanted to take it on in part because they're there every day and they they know the repercussions they'll face. Um, but it had to be said. And fortunately, uh, Dave Hart, who was, I think, was, was an acting athletic director, then a full time and maybe his full time all along, finally pushed it. To the point that it did happen, um, but it had to happen and maybe something like that. Uh, it at least opened the subject for discussion publicly. I think people had talked about it privately, but they finally, it, it brought it out into the light. And I think some people realized they had to take a harder look at it and just, uh, it ultimately, you love your coaches. You love a legend like Pat Summit, but the program has got to be bigger than the person. It, it simply has to be. And they, whether it was Pat's final call, there's some debate about that. I don't know that for sure. They portrayed it as her call and, and maybe it was. Um, but for, for whatever reason, the right thing was done
0: because it simply had to be done. So do you know if she read that column or her son read that column? Like, did you ever actually hear from the family? I have no idea.
1: I have no, never heard from, from Pat directly or from her son. I know it made the rounds around the coaching staff and throughout the university. And I heard from a lot of fans. A, A good friend of mine who lives in Dallas now, a has run a couple of pretty big deal businesses called me out of the blue the next day and he said, well, finally somebody wrote what has to be written. So I, I know it made the rounds and I, I suspect some people finally just felt like their hands were being called and they had to, they had to at least get it out and, and bring it up for open discussion
0: among the alleged leadership at the time. Did you have moments in your career looking back? Will you feel like you crossed a line from being reasoned to being an asshole? Like you look back and you say, "You know what? That was <laughs> that was a I take mean, like I did you? not need." Yeah. Well, I feel like I have a million of them, but I always thought you were much more reasoned. But were there are there moments? Have you had moments where you put something in print and then you think afterwards, you know what? Too far.
1: Uh, yeah, I think you do. I can't think one of one right offhand, Jeff. But I remember uh, when I was covering the Tennessee beat, a quarterback named Tony Robinson blew out a knee against Alabama in 1985, um, and then got into, or maybe before that had been into, cocaine trafficking, and which became a hell of a story. I had a person who spoke on the record uh, about some things he had personally done for Tony Robinson that were, oh, what's the NCAA term, extra benefits. And I wrote about that, quoted him as such. He called me the next morning, blessed me out to the nth degree, and said, that part was off the record. And I said, so-and-so, nobody ever used the term off the record. What you told me, I considered on the record. Now, maybe, looking back, maybe I should have gone back and said, Here's what I'm writing that you said. Now, are we okay with this? Um, what I frankly think happened, he got up the next day, has happened a lot of times in those days when it was an instantaneous media where I posted and there it is for all to see it, you know, 2 a.m. The harsh printed word in the light of day that next morning carried weight that to me, nothing to this day carries. Now, maybe your breaking news does, but uh, there's something about seeing that headline and reading words that are attributed to you, either as a voice, a columnist voice like mine was, or this guy in Knoxville, Tennessee, looking at this and going, holy shit, I can't believe I told him that. And there it is, and you can't go pick up all the newspapers around town. There are a couple of those where, to my knowledge, and and on a stack of whatever you want to swear on, I never quoted anyone saying, A, anything he or she didn't say, or B, anything that was told to me in confidence. Now, if it was told to me in confidence as a reference point, and it was clear it could be used to um, verify a story or elaborate on a story. And we agreed that's how it would be used. That's different. But a direct quote attributed to someone who had said, this is totally off the record or off the record or don't use this. To my knowledge, I never, uh, I never went there. That's, that's off limits to me. Still is. Even if I'm writing a note to a friend, I somebody tells me something they don't want me to, to repeat, I won't repeat it. I remember writing something about Reggie White at one point that portrayed him as Reggie for a period of time was this guy. He thought Latin Americans had these gifts and black Americans had these gifts. And, you know, it's the old thing you can cram. 20 Latin Americans in an apartment, they're just fine because that's what they do. Well, I i went back through some of that about Reggie, uh, fortunately, before his death, and then came to find out Reggie had, had his own come to Jesus, frankly, meeting at some point after that and had really taken a harder look at some things he had said and done uh, up to that point in his life. Through through my own fault, I was unaware he had he had changed in that way when I wrote what I wrote. So I I do regret that. That's one of those examples.
0: Guys like Reggie White are complicated. Uh, I always found him a a complicated character because he was beloved. Absolutely, he he seemed like he had a really big heart. He had some really some views that weren't so pretty. uh, In particular, on gays. Yeah, it's almost like. Sometimes, in a weird way, you have to allow that people are not going to share your takes and that sometimes they're going to have positions right. that you actually consider sort of ugly, but that doesn't that doesn't put them in the narrow box of quote-unquote bad guy.
1: No, I think you're right. And, and Reggie, yeah, he had his faults right up until his death, and I'm sure he would have told you the same thing. But he embraced Judaism, which was, you know, in, in the early days of Reggie White, and frankly, many... Of reggie white's days he thought the only way to uh eternal salvation was through jesus christ and would make that clear every time you talk to him but he he softened in many ways at some point later on in, in what was too short a life but yeah people are different and it it shouldn't take us that long to figure it out i you can talk to someone for three minutes and get a pretty good read if you're so just because someone is a tromper and I'm not, that doesn't make him or her a bad person. We, uh, unless we go too far, then it makes you a horrible person. People are different, and that's the thing you're, you're raised differently. I, I think back to some of the they were kids when I was being raised in the same school with them in the same grade in the same classroom. They were just raised with different parents and different aunts and uncles and in a different little neighborhood where their views of race relations are dramatically different from mine. Now I was, I was not born in a black neighborhood. I was born in a probably a lower middle class neighborhood. I uh, never wanted for anything that I knew of, but for some fortunate reason to me, I was exposed to things at some point in my life that some other people weren't exposed to. And, you know, my worldviews are different from theirs. Doesn't mean I don't dearly love some of those people to this day. John Rocker, your, your old buddy had different <laughs> views than, than most everyone I tend to gravitate to but there there's a reason he had those views you have to to a degree you have to take into perspective what people grew up around and how they grew up
0: i actually think one of the things we've lost in journalism with the decline of, of newspaper and also the emphasis on speed is taking someone like john rocker and instead of saying okay Why is he this way? Let's figure out why, what is it about this guy's background? Okay. He grew up in Macon, Georgia. He grew up with this. He grew up with that. Now it's just, Oh, he's such an asshole. He's a horrible guy. This guy's a jerk. He needs to be suspended. He's awful. And we've lost a lot of the analysis that actually makes people interesting.
1: Yeah. And, and you also have to include in that Jeff. I'm, I'm sure at some point early on in minor league baseball, he was exposed to black teammates uh, but if you, and, and I know you have been, you've been in more baseball clubhouses than I have by far, but I can tell you from the early days of covering the Nashville sounds when they were a startup minor league franchise in Nashville, I wasn't the B writer, but I, I would be out there on occasion. A, a baseball, especially a lower minor league baseball organization. In those days, I'm talking about the mid to late seventies could be a, about as racist an area as you could find. Now guys would get along, you know, between pitches and all that. And some of the more progressive ones would get together before and after games, but there was a lot of segregation in the clubhouse when I was covering the Nashville sounds. So yeah, it's, that's part of again, that's part of what made rocker rocker. He, he was around that for a significant amount of time in, in his life up until that period when, you know, he, he just out and out exposed himself for, for what he was at that point. In
0: 1996, you were covering the Atlanta games and you were uh, very close to the bomb going off um, when, yes. when it happened. And you actually wrote a, a first person piece for the Tennessee and about it. You're a, uh, Your lead was, that was a bomb, in quotes. And he said, I've never heard one before. I hope I never hear one again. But the very instant Mm -hmm. I heard the explosion early yesterday morning, there was no doubt what had happened. Your heart wants to believe this is part of a fireworks display, or maybe a weird kind of noise that somehow got magnified. But your mind knows better. It registers only one thing. That was a bomb. That's really freaking good. Um, How terrifying was that?
1: Well, first off, I was in a bar. So it wasn't quite as terrifying as it would have been if you had been near the stage where it went off there in at the Atlanta Olympics in Centennial Park where the bomb was left. Um, there were, uh, I can't remember the name of the hotel. Anyway, it, it was one of those. They put up almost overnight to accommodate Olympic traffic. And it was packed all the time. And But they had a little bar downstairs and a group of us, had decided, you know, you bump into people you know and some people you don't know at the Olympics, and it's like, hey, you want to get a beer at the end of the day? Yeah, let's meet at so and so. Yeah, that'll be crowded. Let's let's go somewhere where we can talk. Um, so we picked this little bar. Excuse me. At the what midnight eleven thirty, whatever time we all got done riding, so we're hanging out and have barely begun. You know, ordered a beer or two. And the bomb goes off, and it's like, it's a Friday night. The first thing I do is grab, you know, what you think of as a laptop these days. It was the old old up screen radio shacks. Anyway, I grab that, run for the door. I, I immediately jump out into the street like I know what I'm doing. I'm a journalist, right? I start. I've got a notepad. I've got a tape recorder. I've got my laptop of sorts. And I start interviewing anybody that will stop and talk. It, I think I wrote at the time and it, it looking back, it, it, it really is like they have dropped you into the middle of an action movie. People are running. There are probably one out of every 10 people you see has a uniform on with a weapon. Um, Helicopters are swooping in. It's, it's all of that stuff. So I stop and I, I, I'm interviewing people. It's late in the evening on a Friday evening. Um, and get notes, finally plop down. A, you can't get back to the media center, which was a, not a, not a terribly long walk from where we were, Centennial Park. They they've shut it shoot, they've shut everything down. By then they're locking down the the payphones. And so I sit down on a street corner and start typing off my notes and off my tape recorder what I've got. At one point I look up and I am surrounded by two dozen uh let's say mainly Asian photojournalists, photographers. <laughs> Who are taking my picture, writing about what we're all covering. I'm an ugly American. I really only have one language. So I I tried to convey to those people that I'm doing my job. You need to be doing your job, which ain't taking pictures of a guy doing his job. So anyway, (laughs) get through all that. This is before cell phones are are out and usable like the. They are today. So they finally open the doors to the media center. I get back in, get to a phone and call the Tennessean office and get Chuck Morris, who I can't remember if y'all would have crossed paths or not. Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Yeah. I get Chuck, who's like one of the late guys on Friday. And, uh, I say, Chuck, I've always wanted to say this, hold the presses. And he said, what? How much have you had to drink? And I go, yeah, yeah, I've had a little, but there's something else going on. And I tell him what's going on and I said, I need to dictate a story to you. And he said something like, well, there's, I got the TV on. There's nothing about it. There, there's nothing about what you're saying isn't on television, not even a crawler on there. And I tell him a little more, trust me, I'm in the middle of this, bomb just went off and all. And then he says, wait, something just came on TV. Call me back. Of course, uh, phone lines became very hard to come by, outgoing lines out of Atlanta at that point. So I was not able to touch base with him again that night until probably 2.30 or 3.00. Finally got through, and he had stuck around and was told the decision was made to run a bulletin off the AP wire, and, but we want you to write this first-person account of what happened for the Sunday paper, which we've been writing on Saturday for Sunday. So that's the story that appeared, but from a sheer you-were-there moment, that's the biggest breaking news I've ever been a part of by by miles and miles there is nothing to rival the sound of being that close to what you immediately know is a is a bomb and that that'll stick with me for all my days
0: your last column or your last day at the Tennessee was October 30th uh, 2015 people retire all the time obviously and they say I'm so happy to be leaving and I'm Ready and I'm taking, you know, taking retirement. And you had a high-profile job in an awesome city. And then one day you don't like, then yep. it ends. So you're this, you're yep. high-profile job. And then one day you don't have a high-profile job, and you're a guy living in South Carolina, and you don't have the byline, you don't have the name of the paper. Is that a tough transition, or not as bad as it sounds?
1: It's tough. I've talked to other people who have gone through both before I left and since I left. There's a transition there that's very difficult. We continued to live in Nashville for two years after my retirement. Rebecca was continuing to work for about a year and a half of that time. Uh so I had a lot of time to go out and just go to stuff that I'd you know, I'd go to a late lunch, I go to a where you know, go to the grocery, do all the stuff that you you just do when you're not kind of tied to chasing down stories and writing commentary and doing all that. And for, for the longest time, the longest time for the better part of a year, we're still in Nashville. I'm out in public as much as I've ever been or more. Um, and people are coming up to me and going, Hey, you're the only reason I keep reading the Tennessean and I'm give it the old, well, don't give up on us, you know, hang in there. And, Hey, I really enjoyed what you wrote the other day. Well, good, because that was a year and a half ago, but okay <laughs> uh i I don't have a big ego. I can say that in all honesty. never really have always had more self doubts than self assurances, but there there is an ego that goes with that job. You're recognized in in what were my glory days, your pictures in the paper about every day. They, you know, they'll run an ad with you on a full page or of something or other. You're, you're ugly mug and you're, you know, when you go to events, I remember going to the little league world series in Williamsport, the year Goodlesville won it. Um, which I think may have been 14, 2014, could be wrong on the year. Um, but I remember getting there and the coach of the winning team, a guy named Joey Hale, uh, looked out at me. The, the, the little league world series had been going on for, uh, you know, the better part of two weeks prior, certainly a week. They have all the elimination rounds and all that. So I come for, uh, what's essentially the, the U S final and then the international final the next day. And when I walked in the interview area after that game where they won to, I think, get into the US final, he looked at me and I had never met Joey, uh, to that, up to that moment and looked at me and said, well, something like, and it's a small group of people, but he said, I never thought I would, I would live to the day when David Clymer came to, to talk to me after a baseball game. So stuff like that, you just, yeah, it, it's a little embarrassing at the moment, but you also cherish it. So, you, yeah, you miss that. And the great thing about being on the South Carolina coast is nobody knows who the shit I am, and I love it. People don't come up to me and want to talk about sports. I'm a regular schmo walking the beach, going to the grocery cooking for people Uh, if we talk sports somebody who knows me from those days might mention it but that's the only time it comes up it it was almost like uh, i've been able to drop my guard this is the best part of me and and to be able to say that at 66 is a heck of a thing
0: you said you recently went back to the tennessean offices and uh... i did I mean, your time at the Tennessee and first 1100 Broadway was a pretty grand building. And I remember being there and I would go down to the printing press just to watch it oh, yeah. being printed because I Me thought too. it was so thrilling. And it was it was a two newspaper town and there were battles between the banner of the Tennesseean. and the Tennesseean produced Halberstam and Al Gore and Tipper Gore worked there. And mm. it sort of had this huge legacy. It was a feeder to the New York Times and yep. this great journalism. Jerry Thompson infiltrating the KKK. I mean, on and on mm. and on. Sigenthaler. Are you able to separate yourself enough that seeing what it has become and seeing what newspapers has become doesn't hurt your heart?
1: It hurts my heart because it's not the Tennessee as much as the whole business the where we've gone but but yeah to to go from that old historic and yeah dusty and uh, creaky in a lot of places but there are there was a lot of Ink around 1100 Broad that's not at the the current digs, which are maybe a quarter mile away, maybe not quite that far. Um, but they've got three floors and a relative high rise. It doesn't have the same soul, and you regret that. But there are still some really good people there. Maria De DeVarain, who's the editor, she and I have remained very close. She is great to me. I, I left on really good terms and, and I know some other people didn't and I understand that how that jade you, but I left with a take it or don't take it buyout offer. I had thought about leaving and we, uh, we had already bought a, a place on the coast. So my time had come and so I didn't leave with that hard feeling that I know a lot of people did. So. To see the new place, I'm glad for them that they're still up and running. I'm glad there is a degree of optimism. They have a great view, a lot of windows, which we never had, but they also don't have a whole lot of history
0: that we had. And, and that you're always going to miss that I'll kind of end where we started. You're, uh, you're going through a really awful battle with pancreatic cancer. Is there a part of you when you go through something like this? just instinctively because of who you are and what your life has been, will you want to write about it?
1: I've thought I've got a notepad. I have not written a note yet. Physically, I've made a lot of notes mentally. And there could be a point it will, if that comes to pass, and I have something to write at the end of this, whichever way the the journey turns, It'll be something that'll be important to me to have written, and whether anybody else ever sees it at all. No, it's likely nobody else ever will see it. But yeah, with my life and what I did for so much of my life, it, it's only natural that I put words to paper.
0: Well, you know, David, I'm I'm a a huge, huge, huge admirer of of your writing and your career and just you as a guy. There's and, actually
1: uh... an H in the word huge. That was huge.
0: <laughs> I just want to say I never when I, I never when was, thought of that you, Jeff. I, I, oh. I had you in a different camp. So I interned at the Tennessee in nineteen ninety three and it was, it was a glorious hockey, time. And they let me write one column. And I wrote a column at the end and it was called mm-hmm. I reckon y'all need lingo fixing. <laughs> I, I don't oh, I, to this Lord. day to this day I don't know what I was thinking. The
1: only word yeah. that ever came to mind when I when I read that and read it the first time and reread it was, why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, given any subject about Nashville, about the newspaper, about the South, about what you thought about bacon, what anything you could have written, why in the world did you write that?
0: I think the answer would be because I was an asshole.
1: Well, you could say that about
0: any number of things. Yeah, but that was terrible. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but here's the other question. Why did an editor allow me to write that? I don't know, and I uh, hope heads rolled. <laughs> it was really bad judgment. Well, I appreciate you doing this. Seriously, this is a, a, a true thrill for me. I, I really appreciate this. You're very, very kind, and I appreciate the opportunity. I want to thank today's guest, David Clymer, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.